Geek Card presents Back Issue Bloodbath with your hosts, Andrew Young and Petula Neal. There's not too many people who can say they killed Superman and Galactus, but this person can. Welcome to Back Issue Bloodbath. I'm Andrew Young. I'm Petula Neal. And when I say this person, I don't mean myself, of course. I mean legendary writer and editor. Louise Simonson. You know, people would be like, okay, yeah, she was part of the death of Superman. But in 1999, she wrote a, a series called Galactus the Devourer, in which Galactus died for a short period. Just like Superman, it was a short period. So yeah, like, I can't think of another person who's gotten to kill both those iconic characters. Yeah, like, what an all-timer. I mean, I guess I'm assuming that Galactus is a cisgendered male based on pronouns, but uh, yeah, she kills men and humanizes women just in general Yeah, across all of her work, especially considering how long she's been at it. The dialogue of her female characters feels the most like their people. How fun. How great for her. <laughs> <laughs> how novel. Yeah. Yeah. Barely a fridge in sight. Like when going through... And I, based on the fact that I more Marvel, especially since I let my DC United expire <laughs> uh, or Infinite expire, uh, stayed more on the Marvel side. But everything from even like Star Wars Legends stuff, it was just like these ladies sound like people. Yeah. Yeah. They, no, they totally. It's not all even when they're getting tossed off of stuff, because <laughs> MJ has like a stellar mistaken for Spider-Man moment in a Simonson book. That's just it's amazing. And you get. You get that Garfield moment where she gets tossed and Peter's like, oh, no, not again. But that whole run, I think it's it's not much. It's like three or four issues, maybe, where Smythe 2 mistakes MJ for like the real Spider-Man due to a mix up with a hat that he gave to Aunt May. It's a ridiculous premise, but <laughs> she somehow pulls it out of the fire. And the whole time, MJ is like super active in her kidnapping. So. Right. Taking like the common trope of, oh, no, one of Peter's girlfriends is taken and he has to do something about it. It makes her like an active participant in protecting her on, you know, leaving a trail, you know, tricking the bad guy. And yeah, she does eventually get tossed, but she gets caught because she does such a good job leaving a trail for Peter. Mm -hmm. Like everything from using her little boots, her little green boots is breadcrumbs. It's so great. Like this is how you do it. She's an all timer. And my only real complaint about her work is I wish there was more, which, which is insane because there's so yeah, much. Like I so barely much. scratch. She's boots. still working. Like that's yeah. the thing. She started writing comics in the 80s. And she's been still writing comics for like 40 years. Like this past year in 2022, there are still issues that she's written that are coming out. And she could have been writing earlier. I, I saw an interview with her where she was talking about how Marvel wanted her to start writing earlier when she was mostly acting as an editor and like yeah. uh, kind of people manager, line manager for other freelancers. And she was like, well, I don't want to take work away from freelancers. What a what a mensch. Yeah, it's interesting. Before she even got into editing, her first experience connected to comics, she modeled for artist Bernie Wrightson's cover of House of Secrets number 92, which is the first appearance of the Swamp Thing. It's her likeness on the cover of that iconic issue. And then in 1974... Of course, at the time, her name was Louise Jones. She started her professional comic book career at Warren Publishing. She went from assistant editor to senior editor to the comics line. She was dealing with creepy, eerie, vampirella. And she left the company at the end of 79. In 80, she joins Marvel Comics. She's, as, as you mentioned, she initially is working as an editor. They wanted her to write, but she went solely into editing. 
and of course was the editor during Claremont and Burns' epic run on X-Men, Uncanny X-Men. Not just John Byrne, of course, Dave Cockrum's return to the book and uh, Paul Smith as well. And uh, she was an editor on Conan the Barbarian, The New Mutants, Star Wars and Indiana Jones when they were there. She was basically one of the top editors at Marvel. And in 1983, she quit the editing side to focus on the writing where she created Power Pack and a number of other characters. It's interesting how she kind of ended back up in the X-Men world. Is it uh, Bob Layton? was writing the X-Men spinoff X-Factor. He's running later on a deadline, and so they asked Simonson to write a fill-in issue. She wrote it, she handed it in, but as soon as she handed it in, Leighton actually got done on time and was like, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna shelve this. We're going to pay you for it, but we're going to shelve this because Bob's on time. And she's like, okay. But because she put time into writing that issue, her mind started going. She started coming up with all these ideas for the X Factor book. And so she presented them all to Bob Harris, the editor, and was like, see if, uh, you know, see if Bob can do anything with these. Because the, I really like these ideas. I think these will work. Just what happens, Bob decides to leave the book right after that. So at the urging of Chris Claremont and Anna Senti, of course, two of the top writers at Marvel at the time, Bob Harris hires her as the new writer of X-Fact. And the choices she makes, the risks she takes with these characters is so interesting. Because, of course, it's the original X-Men lineup. It's Cyclops, it's Jean Grey, it's Iceman, it's Beast. Who's it's, not blue yet. Yeah, And it's Angel. And Also she, not blue yet. <laughs> And yeah, well, what they did with Angel, of course, uh, eventually, you know, a few issues into her run, her husband, Walt Simonson, would come on the book as artist and the two would work together. And what they did with Angel was crazy. She introduced in like her first issue, Apocalypse, in issue number six of X Factor. He was so interesting. Like, I'm reading that and I'm thinking, this is a version of Apocalypse I understand Oscar Isaac saying yes to. Yeah. He basically becomes their Magneto. Like, he is the big bad. He's the, the force they're trying to stop because there are premonitions and um, prophecies that Apocalypse will bring about the end of the world, hence the name Apocalypse. And so they're trying to stop him. They're in this sentient ship that used to fly the Eternals around that they're using as a base. So it's like a big monolith just just chilling over New York, you know, <laughs> and Angel, like he gets, he gets a terrible, of course, during the uh, mutant massacre storyline, loses his wings. Apocalypse gets his hands on him, turns him into Archangel, of course. We all know by now, we've seen it. The grayish blue figure, the razor sharp metal wings, and a serious case of depression and anger, you know, like <laughs> that's just still is... igniting Bobby's latent thirst, but in a different way. <laughs> yeah. And so you see him travel to the dark side, overcome the programming of apocalypse, come back to the light side, but still be forever trapped in anger and vengeance for a long period of time in the comics. Like that's again, didn't see that coming course beast goes through his second evolution of course he was blue then he figured out a way to go back to normal then during this he goes back to blue again and his feet are always very large and i know that's the art not the writing but i feel like somewhere in her storyboard there must be like well you know what they say about big feet (laughs) (laughs) beast like uh what does bob the drag queen say purse first beast is always like foot first into a panel love that for him it's such a look oh scott is such a messy f boy oh my goodness well yeah well that's the thing she inherited basically scott and this is the reason why i always think uh, scott's a piece of shit 
Yeah. Because it's like coming into X Factor, Bob Layton just kind of put out there that it's like, oh, Gene's alive again, so Cyclops is not going to give a crap about his wife and child and just leave them. His wife, who happens to be a clone of Jean Grey, looks exactly like her, but she isn't the original article, so he just tells them to fuck off. And of course, Simonson takes that and ends up building a huge storyline where that, uh, that clone, Mandoline Pryor, well, it's revealed that she's a clone, but then she kind of goes way down the dark side, becomes the Goblin Queen, and basically helps bring hell to Earth. It's what he deserves. <laughs> Here's the thing. <laughs> what I also love, it, it's, it's realistic in a crappy way, where the rest of the dude X-Men are covering for and lying for Scott to Jean, and eventually she has to, like, trick the truth out of them. Like, so, I mean, y'all knew he had a whole wife that yeah. looks exactly like me, and y'all were cool with this, and just had me out in these streets dealing with and they're both of the women are dealing with the mental shenanigans that have been visited upon them here's the thing i will say corsair smorsair the true father of scott summers is charles xavier because this is some mind f shit that's like <laughs> on a chuck level for real i cannot even it, it is like yes louise i feel you I love you. You're keeping true with the times and probably what you were allowed to do with certain characters, but also just low-key shade to that kind of, you know, bros over hoes energy. Mm -hmm. It's like the rest of the X-Men weren't for this either. Like they should have just, you know what, um, Gene, while you're away. (laughs) (laughs) Like how hard is that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. But of course. It's like, oh, you're not a telepath anymore? Thank goodness. Can't read minds. Oh, that's so good. There you go. Yeah. Just go work. Go, go lift that thing with your mind over there. We gotta. Yeah. Gotta take care of some stuff. All yeah. Right. The moral of that story was: you only tell your girlfriend the truth if she can read your mind. <laughs> oh, pardon me. Your side piece, because you have a whole wife at home. Yeah, I have a whole wife at home <laughs> and a child. Child. Yeah. Oh, my God, a child now. that they toss around in a, in a, one of a, one of the fight sequences. It's apocalypse. It is comical uh, as they take turns tossing Christopher from one person to another. It's actually, yeah. yeah. Again, like her right. It's so deft. Just her handling of she's good at team, like great at team ups, exceptional at like using the powers of the different characters in a fight in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's like, let's make an ice ladder out of here. Let's do this. Let's do that. Yeah, it's kind of funny that that Apocalypse was such a force in there that in order to uh, protect Nathan Christopher Summers, they couldn't take him to any part of the earth. They had to send him to the future to keep him safe. But uh, what was also interesting is like bringing up Nathan Christopher Summers, of course, all grown up is Cable and much. What a cute baby. He was a really cute baby. <laughs> I always forget that. It's like, oh, you were adorable. But much like X Factor, Louise kind of fell into writing New Mutants as well because Chris Claremont was having trouble dealing with both X-Men and New Mutants at the time. And so she came in to fill in. And of course, Chris also trusted the two of them were like a great pair who would talk back and forth about storylines so they'd know what each other was doing. The X universe was all pretty tight. And it was during that time on New Mutants that very late in her run that she introduced Cable. And her and Rob Liefeld created Cable. And so she was writing Cable and Baby Cable at the same time. (laughs) 
It's so great. Yeah. A part of the way through a speed run through, I'm going to say generously 15 to 20% of this woman's output. I was just kind of wishing that maybe she was, if she could be homies with George R. R. Martin, it might be able to help him. I don't want to like, you know what, finish if you want, George. But in terms of helping somebody who's built a huge world deal well with continuity, but also keeping characters true to the behavior that they've had in other books whether she was involved in them or not i think that's what she was the best at like every character whether they were doing something you agreed with or not it felt like this is a good or not good move that you know the x-men would make with or without charles this is morlock behavior when you see them interact with them and expect like this makes sense and not just having characters do things in order to move the story in a direction and it often happens that it doesn't like the behaviors don't make sense. Mm. Like Charles being the like most just ruthless recruiter of children ever, like uh, in terms of, you know, who he assesses to recruit versus discard um, when he decides who should be forgiven regardless of other people's feelings, disregarding other people's cultural identity, shouts to you, Moonstar. What a, what a tough run for early <laughs> Moonstar. But it's like, I'm, it makes sense with the time things were written, but also the way the characters are. And if anything, going back into more of her works versus reading newer stuff reminds me more why I, I truly put Charles Xavier as one of the worst fictional parents of all time. It's like, this didn't, this, this isn't some fever dream of mine. It's like, she knew this and she told us, like, she meant that. Oh, yeah. Man, yeah. Like, thank you. Yeah. You don't just only recruit the attractive children and then leave the other ones to live underground. Yeah. If uh, if you're waiting at home, now is the time to drink. <laughs> it's the part of the episode where Petula <laughs> talks about how Professor Xavier's a bad daddy. That's a bad daddy. <laughs> and he learns nothing. Like a whole new set of new mutants. Guess what? Yeah. Same oh, old moves. So Louise, of course, she wrapped up her time at Marvel in 1991 because DC came a-calling and was offering her Big Blue, a new Superman title, Superman Man of Steel. And so she came over and she wrote the book for eight years, from 91 to 99, all the way up to issue 86, and was part of the creative team that killed Superman. One of the biggest cash cows of the mid-90s, the most talked about, probably the first story in comics that had substantial eyes of the world on it, being covered by all major news outlets. It was a big deal. And not only did she get to be a part of that, so she had a hand in telling the first story of Doomsday, but out of that came her creation, Steel, which is considered uh, one of the best characters to be created in DC in the 90s. Like, she was part of creating something that people who've never read a single comic would at least have heard of culturally. Yeah. 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 And so it's like, it's it's a big deal. It's a big deal to be a part of that. But of course, also, like, Steel was a big deal when he came out. Like, again, wasn't a good movie, but the, it was a DC film that got made in the 90s, you know? Yes, Shaq, Shaq's acting career still just a bad call for the 90s that most of us try to forget. And others try to say that the Mandela effect made us forget that it's actually Sinbad, but it's not Sinbad in that genie movie. It is Shaq. But anyways. My favorite acting appearance of Shaq was his guest on Fresh Off the Boat. Oh yeah, yeah. I haven't I didn't I didn't see it. I think he plays a 
owner of a, a chain of car dealerships and the son who's like sort of obsessed with basketball and hip-hop like uh manages to get a hold of a, a shoe of his anyway yeah my my favorite performance of Shaq's is uh when he uh, uh masqueraded as a pro wrestler uh a couple of years ago in aew so yeah he doesn't have the joints i mean wrestlers their bodies go through it but He's already just so beat up just from existing at those dimensions. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so big. Yeah. So big. Of, of all second careers. <laughs> Yeah. That's why he only had one match. Yeah. He hasn't had a match since. That character, Steel, cemented in the 90s as one of the more important characters of the DC Universe. He was introduced and quickly kind of became, in the 90s at least, their answer to Tony Stark. You know, scientist, uh, like incredibly smart guy, suit of armor, you know, and so the big character to uh, to come out of that time. There's, like, again, character over time has kind of, you know, faded to the background, but it's still, Steel has a fan base out there. People, like, one of those, so you ask some people, their favorite character is Steel. And after, like, when she got out and sort of came back to Marvel, just good tactical moves and timing. Oh, yeah. Because when the whole mess of, like, a series of reboots and cullings and purging of editors and happy, like, she was like, y'all, <laughs> I'll bore one out for you. <laughs> <laughs> my, my name's Paul and this is between y'all. Just, she always seemed to be in, if not always the right place, the most interesting place at the right time mm -hmm. for her career to continue apace, to get to work with some of the most interesting characters and create things that have a lasting legacy, like things that you could read now, whether they're written, you know, a couple of years ago or 10 years ago, and it feels fresh. Everything that I read, even some of the Star Wars Legends stuff, I'm like, God, I wish if they're going to do a, an Obi-Wan spinoff with like uh, in-between stuff, Leia, I would love if like her little run on one of the Star Wars stories could be used for that it's just a complete side quest it's a complete bottle like separate planet of these you know creatures that can see the future and it's intrigue on intrigue double cross on double cross you know uh, imperial pilot who's starting to have second thoughts and some rebels that are having infighting amongst themselves a secret you know queen of the planet uh, a love affair it's a lot of story in again it's like just a it's twice it's like four issues the the leia voice is so perfectly adhering to what we know and expect mm. just she's out on the streets she's being very tactical being very suspicious of people being very judgy being very bossy like whether it's you know child leia from recent obi-wan or <laughs> or her general leia it's it's that very consistent those attributes some iconic moves from her and great shooting and driving and again i'm just like you could literally just lift this script and use it for like a disney plus series like it's that good and touches almost nothing else very good at like weaving between other stories and i think her starting off as an editor managing other freelancers who didn't get to maybe choose what they would write on or stay with those fundamentals just served her so well as a writer later on like everything she touched she just made it make sense yeah and she's one of the few creators out there that's always had like a good relationship with who she's working for that she's been able to come and go and like get to revisit like characters like she got to go back and do a fun series in 2010 called X, X Factor Forever where she got to pick up where she left off in X Factor and tell her alternate story of what would have happened 
from when she left the book. As well, she got to write a magic miniseries, picking up with stuff that she did on New Mutants years ago. And she was one of the creators tapped for Action Comics 1000, where she got to write this uh, fun story called Five Minutes. It was drawn by Jerry Ordway, another legendary Superman creator, where Clark Kent is in the Daily Planet office with uh, Perry White, and he's ducking in and out to save innocence without Perry even noticing. And he still gets in his deadline on time for Perry. And it's like, it's a fun little like, you know, that's how Clark Kent does it sort of story. It's very cool that the characters that she's gotten to leave a mark on, she's gotten to revisit and tell like, put a button on those stories, you know? Yeah. Obviously, a lot of people, herself included, talk about the collaborations that she's had with her husband. But some of my favorite stuff is the stuff with June Brigham. I mean, starting with Power Pack, that's just like. So weird. Well, power listener, pack. Yeah. I'm like, I'm off like weed this week, and I almost didn't miss it. Reading power pack. <laughs> yeah. yeah, power pack is is a story that, and the way that Louise Simonson approached it was like, okay, tweens with powers, young kids with powers. They're powerful. They got powers, but they're still kids. So there's only so much they can do. And the book kind of deals with that. That it's like we got these powers. We want to make a difference, but we're just kids. Nobody takes us seriously. And, you know, again, we might, I might have super speed, but I'm still a kid that could be killed, you know, sort of thing. And so that kind of stuff there tells some really fun stories that young kids can relate to. They can go, well, I don't have superpowers, but I could probably help out the way they helped out there. I can do that sort of thing. And so it was inspirational for young kids, but at the same time kind of summed up the, oh, shit their kids which you know other books kind of ignore you know it's like with batman suddenly like by the time robin was age nine he like you know he could kill a thousand men sort of thing he had the abilities to do that you know sort of thing and of course with the x-men you know as you said many times child soldiers i know that's uh <laughs> and new mutants but in this she actually plays with the fact that these kids the powers family they're kids and so they want to create change, but they're still just kids. And that was kind of the crux of the entire backbone of that story. Yeah. They stumble across their powers by being too curious and staying up late and getting embroiled in like a, a interplanetary kind of invasion slash war, whatever. It's not even the point. They act like children, including having specific personalities that they maintain again mm -hmm. it's like if they're not just doing stuff to make the plot points happen you'll have the little girl that's more inquisitive that's always the one that's looking out you know oh i see light out there oh i see this oh like sort of the first one to discover oh i can do stuff now and the way they portrayed those characters as especially they you know figured out their powers more it again it just makes it makes sense it feels genuine uh, the language, the way they speak to each other, it feels like, I mean, yes, to a certain sense, a little more out there, but it does feel more like the way children would speak to children mm. than other books. Yeah. And so that's, as you mentioned before, she has the ability to easily put herself into the mindset of the character she's writing. And so that always sounds like the true voice of the character, even if it is a little kid. And yeah, because of this, she's still around today. Like this past past two years, there's been issues of X-Men Legends that have been published that her and her husband Walt did the stories for. 
And to have 40 years in the business as a writer and then close to 50 years in comics as a whole, like that's, that's an amazing career. Like there's a lot of people that, you know, talk about the longevity of certain creators. She's definitely up there. She's one of the legends of the business and she helped create a lot of cool pockets of the Marvel universe uh, in the uh, late eighties and early nineties. So, and then of course also had a hand in one of the most iconic stories of all time when it comes to mainstream media. And being a part of introducing, creating characters that have lasted. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And be, have become iconic. Power Pack, Cable, Steel, Doomsday, Apocalypse, and Richter of X-Factor. So a lot of people forget about that one, but yeah, Richter as well. Definitely, if you get, get a chance this weekend, go pick up a Louise Simonson comic. Have some fun. Or an omnibus, because she's done so much. There's, there's yeah. Omnibuy out there. Yes, like, yes. Yeah. If you want to break your legs yeah. and read an omnibus, those things, they're too hard to read, in my opinion. They're just too damn big. But anyways, yes. Check out a Louise Simonson story. You won't regret it. Great creator. This brings us to the end of another episode of Back to Bloodbath. Batula, where can the good folks find you? At inatif.com on Twitter at obesacantavit, O-B-E-S-A-C-A-N-T-A-V-I-T, and here with you. Of course, you can find everything I do over at geekhardshow.com. Follow me on Twitter at geekhard. Follow this very show on Facebook at Back Issue Bloodbath, where we post the new episode every week. And if you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, the best way to do that is to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice. Leave a five-star rating and review because it helps more people find out about us on the uh, on the old apps there. Um, but then after that, you know, go out there and tell your friends, tell your family, tell the comic-loving people in your life about our show. Put the good word out there and uh, and share the goodness of Back As You Blow Bath because we want to share more with everyone. This has been Back As You Blow Bath. I've been Andrew Young. I've been Petunia. Have yourself a good...